Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Excited. In fact, I look forward all week to sharing this time with you. If this is your first time at Heritage, I am so glad you're here. If you're coming back after having been here last week, you know that we kicked off a new series of messages that we're calling Out of the Cave. And in this series of messages, we are talking about the increasingly common, increasingly pervasive problem of depression. And I heard, so, I heard from so many people last week and over the course of the last seven days since last week's messages, I heard from so many of you, so many people who watched online who were telling me how grateful they are, how thankful we are that they are that this church is addressing this topic and talking about this important issue. Because the reality is that depression affects all of us, whether it has been a part of your own personal mental health journey or whether it has affected people that you love, whether you realize that people you love have been through it or not, depression affects every single one of us. And so a lot of people were telling me about how meaningful it is that we're even having this conversation. And I also heard from multiple mental health professionals last week who unfortunately were pleasantly surprised. All right, let me unpack that a little bit. What I mean to say is they were thrilled that we're having this conversation, but they were a little bit surprised to be hearing it in church, and they wished that they weren't surprised, okay? Because in their experience, churches have often been hesitant to talk about depression and mental health, as if depression were an indicator of shallow faith, or as if mental health struggles were an indicator of spiritual weakness. But last week, we kicked off the series by boldly declaring together that mental health struggles, including depression, are not indicators of immature faith. All right, that's really important for you to hear us say. In fact, as we saw last week, some of the most faithful people in history, some people whose stories are recorded in the pages of Scripture and other people whose stories were told after the Scripture was finished being written, some of the most faithful people in history have wrestled with depression and spiritual pain. We need to talk about this topic in church. We need to talk about this as a church family because people of faith can fall victim to depression just the same as anyone else can. And in this series, there are two truths, two convictions that I am praying that the Lord will convince you about during the course of these messages. The first is that God is not disappointed in you when you struggle with depression. All right, I'm praying that the Lord would convince you during this series that that's true for your own sake and for the sake of people around you who might be wrestling with this issue. And the second thing that I'm praying God would convict your heart about is that depression is a multidimensional problem that needs multidimensional solutions. And some of those solutions are spiritual in nature. 
All right? Now, it's really important for you to hear me say, right on the heels of that statement, it's important that you hear me loud and clear that depression often requires medical and psychological interventions as well. It is a sign of wisdom. It's a sign of maturity to seek help when life's circumstances become overwhelming and debilitating for you. And I need you to know that if you find yourself today or any time in the future in need of professional mental health treatment, Heritage stands ready to help you find it. I'm not a mental health professional, all right? I have zero credentials for providing therapy or counseling or any of that kind of treatment. And so during this series, I am going to do the careful work of staying in my lane as we have this conversation, okay? But here's my lane. My lane is that I get the opportunity, I get the privilege, I get the joy of encouraging you to invite God into the most trying moments of your life. And today we're gonna spend a few minutes considering together some of the root causes of depression. We're gonna ask ourselves, if depression feels like being in a cave as it has so often been described where you're kinda in the dark and you don't really know the way out and you're kinda feeling stuck, if depression feels like being in a cave, How do you end up there? How do you get into that kind of situation? How do you get into the cave in the first place? You know, I have a little brother, eight years younger than me, but I'm gonna call him my baby brother anyway, you know. He works for this big company, this national, international company that sells commercial grade lawn equipment. They sell chainsaws and trimmers and blowers, which means that every time I have a problem with my weed eater at my house, the first thing I do is pick up the phone and call my little brother, right? Because he, he deals with weed eaters all day long. This is his job. This is his business. And I've learned over multiple troubleshooting calls with my brother that every time he has a problem with a gas trimmer or some other small engine, it usually is going to boil down to one of just a couple of things. He always asks me diagnostic questions trying to find out if the problem is related to the fuel or the compression or the spark. And those are the three categories that he's looking for. What he tells me is if there's a fuel problem, it has to do with what's being put into the engine. It has to do with something external that's been included or that's been added to the engine. There could be a problem where the fuel is diluted or the fuel is too old or it's just not potent anymore. This is an external problem that can create a comprehensive issue for a weed eater. But then he says the other two issues, the compression and the spark, these have to do with problems that are going on inside the engine. There are internal issues that could be totally unrelated to the fuel that that could also make the engine have trouble. And I understand the mechanics of a weed eater aren't all that interesting to all of you, but it turns out that our brains aren't terribly different in some ways because there are multiple factors, multiple categories of issues that can be triggers for our depression. And some of the risk factors have to do with what's external. Some of the risk factors have to do with what's being fed to us, with what we are receiving from outside of our bodies. And some of the factors that can impact us have to do with what's on the inside, have to do with the internal operations of this engine that we call our body and our mind. When it, you know, when it comes to physical illness and disease, 
we've become accustomed to the understanding that there are internal and external factors that can cause disease, right? I mean, doctors for the last number of decades have thoroughly convinced us that issues like heart disease, lung cancer, diabetes, those can all be connected to your genetic makeup. And so it can be more common for people with a family history of heart disease, lung cancer, or diabetes to struggle with those same issues. That's an internal problem. But on the other hand, we also know that there are environmental factors and there are lifestyle choices that can contribute to heart disease and lung cancer and diabetes too, right? So it's not an either or kind of thing. It's a both and kind of thing. And in a similar way, depression seems to have some genetic, some internal connection. Scientists have studied the patterns of depression among identical twins, people who have the same genetic background, the same genetic makeup, and they have discovered that major depression is connected to some genetic factors. In fact, they say 40 to 50% of major depression is connected to genetic factors. It's not uncommon for families to be able to look back in their family tree and to be able to trace a pattern of depression that happened among their ancestors. They can remember events. They can remember seasons. They can remember episodes when some of their ancestors seem to have struggled with the symptoms of major depression, even if the medical community at that time was not capable of accurately diagnosing it that way. We also know that some of the things inside of us that have been put there by prior trauma, some of those things can linger with us and lead to struggles with depression. If you struggled with, or if you, excuse me, if you suffered from abuse or from neglect in your past, then your present day life may be permanently and profoundly impacted by that experience. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, it's always hard for me to pronounce that, but he wrote the, the book, The Body Keeps the Score. And he said, we have learned that trauma is not just an event that took place sometime in the past. It is also the imprint left by that experience on the mind, brain, and body. And this imprint has ongoing consequences for how the human organism manages to survive in the present. He goes on to say, trauma results in a fundamental reorganization of the way that the mind and brain manage perceptions. It changes not only how we think and what we think about, but also our very capacity to think. And so it's possible. It's possible that your unique life story and your family history and your painful experiences and the things that you've been through, it's possible that all of those internal issues could create a problem of depression in your life. But the truth is we can also face external circumstances. We can also make lifestyle decisions that can cause or instigate or intensify seasons of depression for us as well. If you're going through a season of grief, 
that can trigger depression. If you're experiencing extreme disappointment over the circumstances of your life, that can be a trigger for depression. If you're facing a particular challenge like the loss of a job or like a, a, a frightening medical diagnosis, you can find yourself wrestling with depression, maybe for the first time. Doctors tell us that over half the majority of those who are diagnosed with cancer experience at least a mild to moderate time season of depression immediately after that diagnosis. You can also be dealing with chronic stress. You can be, find yourself living an unbalanced lifestyle that neglects proper rest and nutrition and exercise and play, and that can cause depression to flare up. And then there's loneliness and isolation, which seem to be chronic in our in our culture, and they can leave us feeling unfulfilled and unsafe. And when you put together all of those factors, when you think about all of the risk factors that I just named and the ones I didn't get around to, it's easy to see that anybody could be affected by depression. It's not just for those who have a family history, a traumatic experience, or a genetic propensity for depression. This can touch anybody's life. And the struggle can be aggravated by genetics, it can be aggravated, aggravated by traumatic experience, or it can simply be aggravated by the situation we find ourselves in. And in this series, we're taking a look at the life of a man named Elijah who experienced acute, severe depression that was intensified by a multitude of complicating factors. In fact, this morning, I want us to take a brief look together at the factors we know about from Elijah's life, and I'm sure we don't know about all of his experiences, but we're going to take a look at some of the factors we know about from Elijah's life, and we're going to look and see about how this man engaged with God, this man of faith engaged with God during the darkest moments of of his life. So if you've got a Bible with you, I'd be thrilled for you to join me in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. If you use the Heritage app on your smartphone, you can just click where it says Bible on the main menu and it's going to take you immediately to the chapter where we're working this morning. But I want to remind you of the Elijah story that we started last week and remind you about where we left off. You need to know that Elijah was a prophet of the living God, which means that Elijah had a calling and a commission to act as God's representative and to communicate on God's behalf. Elijah lived about 2,900 years ago in the kingdom of northern Israel, and he was primarily assigned by God to challenge the king of Israel, the wicked, rebellious king of Israel, whose name was Ahab, Elijah was challenged or commissioned to challenge Ahab to turn back in faithfulness away from his idol worship of an imaginary God named Baal and to turn back to worship of the one true God. But Ahab and his wife Jezebel did not have any interest in what Elijah had to say. And so there was this constant back and forth exchange between them as they were both trying to prove the other one wrong and as they were both trying to defend their case. And the tension between Elijah on one hand and Ahab and Jezebel on the other hand escalated to the point that in 1 Kings 
18, where we studied some last week, there was a showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. This false god that Ahab and his wife worshiped, and there was this showdown in that last chapter where the one true God showed up and showed out in a big way and won the showdown and convinced lots of onlookers that Baal was fake. In fact, some of the onlookers assisted Elijah in executing 450 prophets of Baal so that they could not have that kind of influence over Israel anymore. But Ahab and Jezebel, not only were they not convinced by Elijah's demonstration of God's power, they were none too pleased about what Elijah had done at Mount Carmel and what Elijah did to the prophets of Baal. And so Jezebel issued a threat and put out a hit on Elijah's life. And that's where we left the story last week. 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah was on the run. He's fleeing into the desert in an attempt to elude Jezebel and her hitmen. And he found himself, Elijah found himself in the desert all by himself, all alone. He's discouraged, he's feeling hopeless, and he fell into an acute, severe depression. In fact, he begged God to put an end to his life right then and there. He said, God, would you just let, let, let's call it quits. Let's make this the end of the Elijah story. Would you put me out of my misery because there really is no hope for me moving forward. And then out there in the desert after praying that prayer, that desperate prayer of hopelessness, Elijah fell asleep under a tree. And that's where we pick up the story. Chapter 19, verse five, it says, Elijah laid down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, excuse me, as he was sleeping, an angel touched him, came and put his hand on his shoulder and told him, get up and eat. And pay attention to verse six. You can just skim over this and you'll totally miss something huge. Verse six says, Elijah looked around and there right by his head was some bread that was baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he laid down and went back to sleep again. Now, by now, we've heard enough about the story of Elijah's life. We remember chapter 18 and the story of God's raining down fire to consume the sacrifice that was offered during the big showdown. And then we remember subsequently how Elijah called on God to send rain where there had been no rain for three years and immediately a storm cloud started, started building up and a, and a big gully washer just blew in. And we know Based on the history of Elijah's time with God, we know that this little bread and water thing is one of the smaller miracles. It's one of the smaller things that happened in Elijah's life that's totally inexplicable apart from God. But I, I got to tell you, I'm not sure I would have been able to lay down and go back to sleep. I mean, imagine the scene. Here's Elijah waking up under this tree out in the desert. He can't see any civilization anywhere, can't see any humans anywhere else. And suddenly there's hot, fresh bread right there next to him and a jar of water sitting by his head. And this is an incredible moment in the scripture that only gets one sentence treatment and then it just we just keep moving on. But what we find here is that God is providing for Elijah's most basic needs. God knew what Elijah needed in that moment. God was not ignorant 
not oblivious to the fact that among all of Elijah's other problems, he needed some calories and he needed some rest and he needed something to drink. God was taking care of Elijah's most basic human needs. In fact, after Elijah ate and drank and went back to sleep, verse seven says, the angel of the Lord came back, came again and touched him on the shoulder, woke him back up and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. Now, we haven't even found out where Elijah's going here yet, but verse eight says, he got up and he ate and drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights, which is a really biblically significant number, 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai. Some of your translations may say Horeb, which is just another name for Mount Sinai, and it calls Mount Sinai the mountain of God. And it says there he came to a cave. He found a cave at Mount Sinai, and he went inside to spend the night. So here, God has renewed Elijah's strength enough so, so that Elijah has enough energy to be able to get up and travel again. And I want you to notice, if I could, I didn't, I should have put a map up here, but Elijah is traveling south out of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he continues to put more distance, more separation between himself and Queen Jezebel. He's heading south. He's been heading south for quite a while already up to this point, and now that the angel has fed him and given him something to drink, he's heading south even more to get away from Ahab and Jezebel and everybody that's looking for him. But I want you to also take note, not just of what he's running away from, but what he's running toward. Because verse 8 says he was headed to Mount Sinai, which is a really important location in the history of the Israelite people. This is a significant spot. Mount Sinai is the place, and maybe you've seen this in some movie depictions in the past. Mount Sinai is the place where Moses was given the Ten Commandments by God. Mount Sinai is the place where God established a covenant relationship with the people of Israel and made a promise to use Israel as a blessing for all the rest of the nations of the world. And Mount Sinai is the place where the people of Israel vowed to hold up their side of the covenant to do what God asked of them as well. Sinai is holy ground to somebody like Elijah and it's probably the place, it's probably the location that first comes to mind when Elijah is hoping to have an encounter and an audience with God, which is exactly what happens. Continuing on, 1 Kings 19, verse 9, the story tells us that while Elijah was in the cave, while he's inside, in the dark, on this mountain, by himself, the Lord said to him, what are you doing here Elijah. And I wish I could, I wish I knew where the emphasis was to be put in that syllable, in, in that sentence. What are you doing here, Eli? What are you doing here, Eli? You know, what are you doing? I don't know. But I want us to take note of Elijah's answer because it gives us real insight into Elijah's mindset in that moment. Here's what Elijah says in verse 10. Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, which is to say, I have done it with all my heart. 
I've done it passionately. I've tried really hard. I've tried to do everything you asked me to do, God. I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. Now, don't forget where they're standing. Don't forget that they are at Mount Sinai where the covenant was established and where the covenant was ratified. They are in the location where this covenant was created and the people of Israel said, yes, we want you to be our God and we will follow you where you lead. Elijah says, the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars, God. They've killed every one of your prophets over the course of the last few years. And here I am, the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me And you can hear the frustration and you can hear the fatigue in Elijah's words and in his heart here. But I want us to look at the entirety of the picture, the entirety of the 10 verses in this chapter that we've read over the last eight days now, because I want us to look at everything we know about Elijah's state of mind so far in this chapter. Looking back to last week's text, we look at verse 3 and we know that Elijah was terrified. He was terrified by what he was undergoing at this moment. He's running away from Ahab. He's trying to get away from Jezebel. He's looking over his shoulder the entire way because fear, the fear of death, has him tightly in its grip. And then verse 4 last week, we saw two more issues come up. We heard Elijah say, God, I am overwhelmed. I have had enough. The prophetic task had become too much. He was overcome by the burden of everything that his calling was asking of him in the moment. He's too tired. He doesn't feel like he's up to the task, and he cannot complete what God has asked him to do. And on top of that, his sense of self-worth and his purpose were at an all-time low, he said in verse 4. He felt like his entire mission, his calling, his commission from God had been a failure in spite of his best efforts, in spite of his courage, in spite of all of the moments when he had stood up for God when nobody else was doing that. And now here we are in verse 10, the verse we read just a moment ago, and we hear Elijah pouring out the entire truth, all the facts, all the feelings of what he's experiencing and sharing this with God. He says, my frustration, I have this frustration at where all of this passion and energy and leadership has brought me. I mean, Elijah was expecting to see a resurgence of faith in Israel. He was expecting that sooner or later, the king and queen were going to bow their knee and they were going to repent and they were going to turn back to God. And now here's Elijah hiding in a cave, totally outnumbered, feeling all by himself. He's feeling like his work hasn't made any difference. And so on top of that, he's lonely. He's, it's, it's hard to muster up courage when you feel like you're the only one who's trying. And Elijah's felt like that for weeks, if not years at this point. And his ministry has left him feeling isolated and unappreciated and unsupported, like he's out on a limb all by himself. And on top of all of that, he's still wrestling with the constant anxiety of knowing that he's being hunted right now that there are people out with bad intentions who are looking for him. He doesn't have the freedom to let down his guard. He feels like he's constantly got to be on high alert. He's got to be cautious 
all the time. And here's what I want you to notice as we make that list, okay? I know your circumstances, the circumstances of your life don't look anything like the circumstances that Elijah was facing. This story that happened almost three millennia ago is so far removed from today's realities that it's hard for us to see ourselves in Elijah's story. But I want you to notice that in the list we just made, when we reviewed verses 3, 4, and 10 and looked at a list of everything that Elijah was feeling in that cave, here's what we saw. We saw him say I was, he was experiencing fear in verse 3. We heard him say he was, he was feeling defeated and he was feeling low confidence in verse 4. And then when we got to verse 10, we saw Elijah struggling with anger and loneliness and anxiety. And I am convinced that if somebody asked you to write a recipe to make a human being feel depressed, that's the recipe you'd come up with right there. That's the instruction manual that you would write. If you wanted to make a human being feel hopeless, these are the feelings that you would prescribe. We couldn't come up with a list that would be more effective for sending somebody into deep depression than this. In fact, this recipe looks familiar to us because these ingredients are rampant in our culture. We're all dealing with at least some combination of at least a few of these issues in our own lives and in our own families. Statistics say that over the past decade, the prescriptions of antidepressant medication and the use of antidepressant medication has increased by over 300%. And statistics say that in the year 2020, just in one year, the total number of inbound calls to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline in the U.S. increased by over 900% year over year. We are dealing with a cultural tidal wave of the very emotions that lead people into severe depression. We need help. We need to help one another. We need to get help for ourselves and get help for our loved ones. But I want to point out, I want to point out this morning the one thing that Elijah did that as we read this story later over the next couple of weeks, we're going to discover this made a huge difference for him. The one thing Elijah did that I want you to notice is that on the darkest day of his life, Elijah somehow knew that it was safe to run toward God. On the darkest day of his life, when he had the option to try to isolate and to be by himself and to get stagnant, he somehow, deep in his soul, knew to set his face toward Mount Sinai. He somehow knew that it was safe to run toward God. He knew that he could take his despair. He knew that he could take his anger. He knew that he could take his anxiety. He knew that he could take his loneliness and he could take all of that to the one who had created him. When he got overwhelmed, when he reached a point in his life where he couldn't handle it anymore, 
When he felt like he was burdened beyond his ability to cope, he went and he lodged his complaint with the one who knew exactly how much he could carry. We all get overwhelmed, don't we? You know, back in the 19th century in the 1800s, there was uh, the development of, of some new you know, forms of insurance. And one of those areas that was finding that uh, happening in their industry was the shipping industry. And there were shipping merchants who suddenly discovered sort of a loophole, an immoral kind of way to earn themselves a big payday. You see, what they would do is they, they had these aging wooden sailing ships that were used for transporting cargo, but as those ships would age and begin to deteriorate and the, the wood would begin to rot, these shipping merchants discovered that if they could simply put on a new coat of paint and a veneer to make that ship look like it was in really good condition, they could take out a large insurance policy on that ship and then send that ship out to sea and intentionally allow it to sink and then collect a big payday worth much more than the ship that they already owned. And they did that by loading the ships down with more cargo than they were intended to carry, and the ships were riding low in the water. And one of the keys to making this plan happen was that the crew you hired to lead to run the ship couldn't know about the plan, which meant you were certainly sending them off to their death. People were dying. It was a common occurrence, so common that they started to nickname these ships coffin ships because men were being sent to their death at sea all for the sake of a money-making opportunity for the ship's owners. And when it became obvious and known that this is what was happening, there was a British legislature who fought hard for new regulations and eventually succeeded in creating international maritime law that required that all commercial vessels be stamped with a, a, a symbol and a series of lines on the side of their hull that show the high water mark where it's safe for this ship to operate called the Plimsoll Line. Samuel Plimsoll was the British legislator. And there are different lines for different water conditions and seasons of the year and all of, there's a lot of technicality to it. But at a quick glance, anybody who knows what that symbol means can look at it and say, that ship is safe to go out in the ocean or that ship is too weighed down to be sent to sea. And what it allowed was for these overworked, underpaid, uneducated crew members to be able to look at the ship that they were about to go to sea on and find out if it was safe for them to, to embark or not. They were able to look at the line and if the high water line was underwater, they knew the ship was too heavy and they knew that they could go to the port authorities and ask for help because they knew that their ship was overwhelmed. It gave them power it gave them empowerment to go to speak to somebody who had authority over the problem. And I want to tell you this morning, God wants to hear from you when your life is overloaded. God wants you to speak up when your life 
has become debilitating. And God is not surprised by your limitations. God is not offended by your frustrations. God is not disappointed when you have a complaint, when you feel overwhelmed, because the reality is that God created you. God created you with your limitations. God knows your capacity. God knows your ability, and God knows, if anybody knows, God knows that you were never designed to tackle this life on your own that we are made for community and that we are made for connection with our creator to help to carry the load. You know, there was a man who was with Jesus. His name was Peter. He was one of Jesus's closest friends. We hear a lot of stories about him as we read through the gospel accounts of Jesus's life. And Peter was somebody who was frequently putting his foot in his mouth. He was somebody who always spoke before he thought. And once in a while, especially near the end of Jesus's life on earth, Peter ended up making a big mess. He denied even knowing who Jesus was. And he thought, he thought for a while that he was probably useless to God at that point. But then Jesus came and reinstated him. Jesus moved toward him Jesus came and showed up on the beach while Peter was out in a fishing boat a little ways offshore. And he said, hey, come to the beach and have breakfast with me. And Jesus was walking toward Peter and Peter got out of the boat and he swam toward Jesus. And after all of Peter's experience with Jesus, he came to understand that Jesus wants you to come to him on your darkest day. Peter wrote about it this way. He said in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, he said, give all your worries and cares to God. Some translations may say, cast your burdens onto Jesus or unto Jesus. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for you. And it's hard to believe it sometimes, but he cares for you. I don't know if any of you have had the opportunity to see any of the episodes of a series of shows that's out on YouTube and some other streaming services about the life of Jesus, and it's called The Chosen. And I've got to admit to you, there have been other depictions, other representations of the life of Jesus that have been done in movies and shows over the years that I've not been impressed with at all. And, and sometimes it just feels like they're, you know, they're emphasizing the wrong points about Jesus's life or they're not staying true to the story or there's all kinds of problems with it. Or sometimes it's just that the acting is so cheesy. But I've watched this series, The Chosen, and it's affected me in a different way. I found that there are moments when I've got this lump in my throat and there are moments when my eyes leak a little bit. And there are moments that I want to tell other people, go and watch this. And I've, I've really tried to search my own thinking and ask, what, what is it about this one? What is it about this series that makes it different than all the other depictions of Jesus's life? And I think I finally put my finger on it. It's that in this series, Jesus always seems to be smiling. And it's not like a cheesy smile. It's not like the director said, hey, you should be smiling. It's like Jesus is happy. And he's happy when people come to him confused. 
And he's happy when people come to him ashamed. And he's happy when people come to him embarrassed. And he's happy when people come to him amazed. And, it, and it's, again, it's not a cheesy happiness. It's like, I'm so glad that you're drawing near. I'm so glad that you're moving toward me. And Jesus is happy. And he likes to tell jokes. And he likes to dance. And he likes to eat. And he likes people. And it's not based on whether they qualify for his liking or not. He's just happy. And I think it's the most accurate depiction of Jesus I've ever seen on screen. Because it reminds me that Jesus cares for you. It gives me a lump in my throat because as hard as my brain wants to talk me out of it sometimes, knowing who I am, it reminds me that Jesus cares for me. And so I can cast my burdens on to Jesus. I can take all of my worries and cares to Jesus because he cares for me. And so I want to tell you this morning, we're going to continue this conversation over the next few weeks. We're going to keep talking about some of the ways that we can respond in faith, some of the ways that our spiritual journey can be touched by God and by the people of God as we try to wrestle with this problem of depression. But the most important, the, the fork in the road decision we've got to make is whether we trust that on our darkest day we can walk toward Jesus rather than running away, rather than trying to hide. And I think it's the kind of decision that you have to make in a moment when you're not in crisis so that when the crisis comes, you will already be deeply convicted that God's posture toward you looks like this that God's posture toward you says, bring me your worries, bring me your cares. I'm not embarrassed by you. I'm not offended by you. I'm not ashamed by you. I'm not gonna be critical of you. I'm not disappointed in you. I care for you. This is our story.